This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 83, with guest Selma Stern. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Darius Savorova, and welcome to today's episode. Selma Stern currently serves as a chief customer officer at Fortune Media, a legendary name in the world of business journalism. In her role, Selma is at the forefront of driving digital transformation and overseeing the subscription and newsletter business. Today, Selma talks about her Bosnian-German upbringing, her unique life path fueled by ambition and adaptation, and Fortune's secrets to success behind subscriber retention and business growth. We will also speak about the renowned annual list called The Most Powerful Women in Business that showcases and celebrates the achievements and influence of women worldwide. And let's hear from Selma what is the evolving impact of this prestigious list. So let's jump straight into it. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate it on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Summer, welcome to the studio. I am so thrilled to welcome you today. I think the last time we met was at this beautiful brunch. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon and, you know, we chatted shortly and I think we were about to leave the brunch. It was like not a very long conversation, but you mentioned a couple of things about yourself. I was like, well, such a cool woman. Like, I really would like to interview her on my show. And that was perfect because you teased me with your story, but you didn't say much. And that kept me like thinking like, okay, I'm going to ask her other questions on the show today. Great. So Thank here we are. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Honor. excited. Thank you so much for coming. And I think, I mean, it's just been like, was it just one month, right? Since we I saw each so. other. Yeah. So quite recently. So one thing I was very curious is your origins and your background. I know you have this relationship with your uh, Bosnian roots and growing up in Germany. Can you tell more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Sarajevo in what was then Yugoslavia, which was in Bosnia now. And when I was five years old, that was in 1991. Now you know how old I am. Uh, (laughs) In 91, my parents decided to move back to Germany in their case because they had lived in Germany prior to 1986 when I was born. And then I lived in Heide in Schleswig-Holstein, small town in the north of Germany. And then in 95, my parents moved to Neubrandenburg, which is in, I always have to to add that because it sounds like it would be in Brandenburg, but it's not. It's in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern in the northeast of Germany. And that's where I grew up. Cool. Where where does your name come from? It's like if you see it once, you won't forget it because it sounds very strong, Selma Stern, and it's written very clearly What's the story behind it? Yeah, the good thing is the the name works in every language. <laughs> Probably that's exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's funny. Selma is a very, very typical Bosnian name, a very common name. And funnily enough, every time I get into a cab in Berlin and the taxi driver happens to be Turkish, they ask me, they either talk to me in Turkish or they ask me if Selma is a if I knew that Salma was a Turkish name and I tell them yes, but in my case, it's not Turkish, it's Bosnian. But because the Ottoman Empire was in Bosnia for such a long time, there are lots of Turkish names in Bosnia. However, that name was given to me by my half Jewish, half Croatian Catholic father, whose family is from Croatia proper. And um, that's where the Stans are from. And in Croatia, it's actually Stan with a, you know, that little hook on the S. Which, okay. But it still means like a, a star. Yes. it's. I think they were 
originally German Jews, like, I don't know, five generations yeah. ago and then moved to Croatia. Cool. Very complicated. Well, this is an amazing last name to have. You can be just like, call me Star. <laughs> like, it would be like, hey, nice to meet you. I'm just a star. <laughs> so, very, I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> very, it could be very humble, you know. But since like with your background and moving a bit, how were you discovering and rediscovering your identity? That was a long process, or I should say that is a long process. I don't know if that will ever be, you know, finished because, and um, I assume you can relate to that when you grow up with sort of an unclear identity or a, an identity that is not clear cut or that um, raises questions. It's something that you're forced to think about much earlier than your peers might be. And um, if I'm honest, it was something that I didn't like to think about for a very long time. And I just thought, you know, leave me alone. I'm from Neubrandenburg and I don't want any of these complications. And then I also had a phase where I wanted to lean into those Bosnian roots a little bit more. And then I realized when I went to Bosnia that I really didn't feel Bosnian. Like I felt very German when I was there. So I guess the bottom line is just have to learn to live with that ambivalence and um, and, and see the beauty in it, quite frankly. Because I mean, does it, Do you feel like it makes you a bit more stronger? Because, I mean, you do have those different perspectives. And I can imagine when you went to live in the States and work in the state, that also gives a bit of more context, more different views that you bring into the game, into the work. Interestingly enough, in the United States, I always felt like it was less of a thing, like mm -hmm. less of a, an issue, because vast majority of people have some kind of, as in, we like to call it in Germany, migration background, quote unquote. So my name doesn't raise any questions in the in the States. Like I'm mm. Selma from Germany and that's it. In Germany, it was always a little bit more complicated than that, I guess. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. But as I said, I can definitely relate also like living in different places. But to me, it always felt It gives a bit of a strength because you feel like you have so much contact to different cultures and also like growing up now in the States and being in Germany for eight years, you can see those different pros and cons. I agree. I think growing up, we're speaking different languages kind of forces you to, and, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert, but I have read and heard that it actually kind of changes the way your brain chemistry works in the sense that it makes you think a little bit more flexibly, I guess. What I would say about what what you just said about the United States, I completely agree, and that's actually something that kind of keeps drawing me in. I um, I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I've um, lived in the U.S. twice. The second time was very short lived because because of the pandemic. I just moved to the U.S. Yeah, before. maybe you can tell that story. Yeah, happy to. The reason why I really like working in the United States is exactly what you just said. It's faster. There is more of a You know, people accept mistakes and move on. There's this incredible expression that I learned recently. I didn't know it before. Throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. I heard that in a professional context. I've never heard, you know, a German manager say anything like that. So it's, um, I really like that about the States. And uh, yeah, so the, the story is I was at um, Axel Springer for a while after I started my career in management consulting. I then transitioned into the media industry and Axel Springer sent me to the United States on a sort of secondment to build the subscriptions business at uh, Insider, mm -hmm. which in, in Germany is um, more known as Business Insider, but it has these two brands. And I absolutely loved 
that job because it was a fast growing business model. It really felt like uh, being in a startup. And I think that might have to do with, I don't know to what extent it's the fact that it was an American company. And on the other hand, it was also just a, a, you know, a purely digital native company. So there's those two components, but um, I loved the, the speed at which we operated and the ease. You shared this quote with me earlier, and uh, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be really forwards. And you said that this is really, mm -hmm. you feel very connected to this quote specifically. Very much. Yeah, very much so. You know, if, if you'd asked me in 2017, when I was thinking, okay, I should get out of management consulting, what could be the next step? Axel Springer is right across the street. And there's this opportunity. That's a very different story than kind of what it looks like in hindsight, where I somehow gravitated to an industry that I'm actually very, very passionate about and that I, yeah, I think I'm going to stay in. Although, so uh, last year, I should, um, I should add, I transitioned from Insider to Fortune, which is another New York-based media organization. Although back <laughs> before I started at Fortune, I was actually telling my entire net, so it's okay that I'm telling it, uh, that I'm sharing it here. <laughs> I was telling my entire network that I'm done with the media industry. I want to work in a fast growing B2C subscription startup in Berlin because there are so many of them. And I wanted that fast growth environment. And I thought I wouldn't find that in media anymore. And then Fortune knocked on my door and I talked to them. I first thought, I can't do this remote thing again. I don't want to live in Berlin and work in New York. But I um, I talked to the management team, to the wonderful editor-in-chief, Alison Chantel, who's our age, um, the youngest editor-in-chief um, and the first female that Fortune's ever had. And, um, I saw her did. interview introducing the the list, the most powerful yeah. women list, and I think she was brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's just wonderful. Alan Murray, our CEO, I mean, I, I met with the um, with the executive team of Fortune and I was hooked. I thought, this is incredible. This is a media brand, you know, that is very ambitious, that has a growth agenda, but that also has incredible brand equity. And there's just so much to work with there and in wonderful people. And yeah. it's interesting, you mentioned that Fortune is a like a 90 years old startup. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's what we like to call ourselves. And yeah. I was like, what What does she mean by that? Yeah. Um, so Fortune was founded in 1929, believe it or not. Oh boy, um, yeah. We're yeah. talking about like big legacy here. Yeah, big legacy. It was founded by Henry Lewis, the same guy who founded Time and a bunch of other magazine brands that, um, that you might have heard of. But it is a startup in a sense because um, in 2018, it was carved out of Time Inc., so it, for the longest time, it was part of um, the Time Incorporation. And then in 2018, it was carved out by a private investor mm -hmm. who has really wants, who really believes in fortune, who is in it for the long run and wants fortune to grow. And in the last five years, we have really shown that we can do that. And it's a fascinating turnaround story. We're going to talk more about that. But what do you think fortune has been in the last 10 years and what do people usually associate when they hear fortune people usually think of the fortune 500 first that's and that's our, it i feel like this is where it ends in, sometimes. in in germany that's where it ends in the united states people are very familiar with the magazine i mean we reach tens of millions of business decision makers globally 
every month. Now that we've um, we've expanded so much digitally under um, Allison's editorial leadership, but the Fortune Five basically the last five years, right? That you've, yeah, you've created that presence digitally. Yeah, well, since we've grown it, but we we actually didn't have a standalone website until 2014, believe it or not. Like oh, it wow. was it was part of CNN Money, I believe. <laughs> That's hard um, to imagine it, right? Yeah, and then starting in 2019, our um, CTO Jonathan Rivers, he was digital turnaround expert, kind of really digitized the company in lightning speed. Um, Allison came on two years ago, and that's when um, when traffic really started growing. Um, but to answer your question, so the Fortune 500 is obviously the this iconic company list that ranks U.S. companies by, by revenue. We also have the Global 500. We're launching the Fortune 500 Europe soon. And then uh, the other franchise that I would, um, I would note, we, we call these list franchises, is the most powerful women list that I think we'll also talk about in a little Definitely. bit. So there's a couple yeah. of those lists. But I mean, what, why do you think it's just so interesting because like the company existed for so many years and then someone like picks it up and throws in like important ingredients, digitize it, you know, foster that innovation to bring it back to like a really good shape. And why do you think like, what were those things? I mean, you mentioned a couple, but like, what were actually, especially since you are leading as a chief customer officer, like, what are those like key ingredients of that success of that growth success that drove this change that you say, like, we are absolutely like we have an amazing you know, customer base, we have a loyal community, we have great following, we have huge engagement. Like, what were the, those actual actions that led to it? Mm -hmm. So I have to be honest, I mean, the brand equity that we already had going into independence was incredible, right? With all these lists and communities and conferences that are attended by the highest level people. So we had a lot to work with. But I think what made a huge difference was a shift in our editorial philosophy from being a magazine publication to digital publication. And that meant picking different kinds of stories, faster stories, probably you know paying attention to shorter news cycles because in a, in a magazine, you have more time, right? Like you, when you're reading a magazine, you have more time to read um, longer stories. You really go in depth in something in the digital world. There's still some of that, but it's slightly different journalism. Also from a, uh, from a technological perspective, there's just so much you can do to reach a broader readership online. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is search engine optimization, huge, huge topic for publishers. And um, we really invested in that. Also, like, what were maybe the challenges that you're still, maybe Fortune, but also similar media companies are still facing today? That's a good one. So I would have to say AI is a big one at the moment. I don't think any of us have final answers on what that really means for the industry, but it's very clear that it can, that it can actually mean great things mm -hmm. for us because it makes processes faster, it immensely helps with um, with research. We can also do amazing things with our you know treasure troves of data that we have from all these lists. But there's another challenge I think that is not that talked about and maybe it's not as sexy as AI, <laughs> but that is culture change, mm -hmm. I think. And especially for brands that were very successful in the print age, you know, it's easy to underestimate the importance of 
becoming an organization that can do digital growth because it requires a completely different way of working. I mean, this is not often thought about, but when you when you think about it, the print industry was this massively profitable, super stable, siloed industry where the newsroom would do its thing and then the ad sales team would do its thing and production and distribution would, you know, would do their thing and it didn't require a lot of collaboration. Mm-hmm across these different departments. In the digital world, you can't operate that way. You have to talk to each other constantly. You have to be you know, faster and more agile to use that. And very, very overused word. <laughs> but also it's interesting because Fortune is such a legacy name. And this, what, what you just said, like this culture change, feels like a double-edged sword. On the one hand side, you have this legacy, you have a name. I mean, this is also a question, like how did Fortune earn this name and reputation? What have they done? And probably this is the consistency. This is being present since 1929. Mm-hmm. Being all those years there earns you this reputation. Would you agree with that? With with the, how Fortune earned its recognition, reputation, and such a strong yeah. name? Well, with decades of excellent business journalism. Ultimately, that's that's what it's all about, right? We can do all of these lists and fancy new business models, but at the co- at the core of it, there is always our journalism. And with that, still with the digital era, like forcing you to make change, this is becomes not enough. You have to adapt, and this is interesting. Having this legacy name, having this kind of stamp of approval over those years, you need to adapt quickly to not die out. Yeah, absolutely. You have to pay attention to competition, and maybe this is a another point worth noting here, in the print era, journalistic organizations almost had a monopoly over news, right? Because where else would you go for trusted information? Whereas now with social media and like you, an independent people who are not, you know, journalists who work full time at a journalistic organization can Mm -hmm. do a podcast. There's just a lot more competition and a lot more, you know, pressure to really define your brand and to stand out so that you are the trusted go-to place in this digital world where you just have this barrage of information. That's also a big challenge. Yeah. But tell me about, you said that Fortune knocked on your door. Yeah. <laughs> so how did they find you and why Why they were like, well, you are our perfect chief customer officer. Like, how come? What does this mean? Yeah. So they were looking for someone to grow the digital subscriptions business. First of all, that was the big priority. That's something that I had done successfully at Insider. You know, at, at Insider, we 4 x subscribers and subscription revenue in, in two years. And it's looking very good at Fortune as well. Like we're going to more than double subscriptions revenue this year compared to last year. So You have that, to share some secrets. I have to share some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know what? Um, there's one. It's not really a secret because you can see it on our paywall. We tripled prices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it worked. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there. I don't know how mu- how much you want to go uh, into paywall A/B testing and. No, I'm um, curious. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Okay, consumer subscription strategies. So basically, subscriptions. I would say B two C subscriptions is one giant math problem. You have all these people coming to your website from all kinds of different sources. 
you show them a paywall or you don't, you show them ads or you don't, you show them a registration wall or a registration prompt, and then you have conversion rates, and then you have, you know, probabilistic models of who is likely to subscribe, who's likely to subscribe at what price point. So you can imagine how infinitely complex it can get and how important the right technology is. So it's a constant optimization game. But in the beginning, we did a couple of things that made that really made a big difference, like um, adjusting the price point to where it's supposed to be for a premium publication. We tested into that very carefully. So um, people are willing to pay more. People are willing to pay more. Yeah, turns out our and it, I mean, with hindsight, it's it's no surprise, right? Our readers are executives, business decision makers, who are not as price sensitive as maybe consumer. That's surely, but do, but with paying more, do they receive some additional access to some additional like content that they didn't have access to before, or is it more like personalized or tailored to the needs? So we are expanding editorially quite a bit. So there is that. There's simply more relevant content that we're putting out. But we are also building a sort of more of a membership strategy, right? Where as a subscriber, you might get exclusive invitations to events that we put up, or um, you might get a preferential rate to something else that we're doing. So we're definitely working on that. But it's always a work in progress. Okay. So those are the things you are, they said, like, we want you to replicate the success that you had at Insider here at Fortune. Mm -hmm. And to build, and that's the sort of second part of what I do, is to build better commercial relationships with our readers, so to speak. So um, ultimately that means marketing, which it functions slightly differently in a news organization because you you have that reach that others pay for, right? Mm -hmm. So paid marketing is not necessarily a big component of what we do. But but still, the question is, how do you reach the right person with the right product? So it's um, it's marketing and um, as of late, also brand marketing and PR, because we need to tell that wonderful growth story. That's exciting. And how do you maintain those loyal customers that are already subscribers that are part of that community? Mm -hmm. How do you maintain that relationship? With email plays a huge part whenever someone either subscribes or enters our ecosystem through, let's say, a newsletter subscription, we will do our best to offer them relevant content to keep them engaged. How do you track trends? And when it comes to like consumer behavior, when it comes to various trends, like what is your go-to source to make sure that you are up to date? So I think in two different ways, two very different ways. One, I think, is just staying plugged in in your industry, in your community, you know, going to to conferences or to events and just understanding what people are talking about and what the trends are. The other kind of very different way that is equally important is to really understand your data. <laughs> because especially when you're when you operate in the digital world, you are creating so much interesting data every day, but it's really not trivial to build the systems and to analyze the data, but also to ask the right questions. So that's a big focus. Thanks for sharing. So this podcast is really about, right, women authors of achievement. And the moment I think when we were collecting information for a recording, I was asking, like, it was just like, right that moment, the Fortune's Most Powerful Women in Business list was released. And that also answered my question because you told me you were in New York. And I was like, okay, 
cool like what's happening there and uh, probably this was happening yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's right and this like bliss has become a very prestigious recognition in the corporate world Mm -hmm. that showcases and celebrates achievements and influence of women in various industries and sectors and i was like this is perfect timing because right the show is about that show gives visibility to women i think in a also different way it's not about being in the most successful company when it comes to women i host here it's more about those stories and in my podcast achievement can be translated for people differently right it's it has like different dimension and different spectrum but still i was like this is so exciting because there is more visibility out there for powerful successful women in business so you have also kim kardashian on your cover like let's start with that (laughs) why why kim yeah because you know, if, if anyone doubted that Kim Kardashian was a serious, brilliant businesswoman, I think they no longer do. She's starting a private equity fund with, you know, pretty amazing partners. You know, someone from, from the Carlyle Group is involved. It's a really serious operation. And people who work with her, who have met her, attest to her being a brilliant businesswoman. And that's why she's on the list. Okay, so tell me, how did this list come to be and why Most Powerful Women in Business? Yeah, so Strictly Most Powerful Women in Business, that's our, I mean, that just works with our brand. That's what we're all about. And we want to showcase the success of women in the corporate world. Most of these women on the list run huge businesses, most of them in the billions, P&L responsibility or assets under management or some kind of metric like that, or if they don't have Strictly P&L responsibility than, you know, like the head of HR at Amazon who's on the list who oversees like a million workers. The dimensions of um, business achievement of these 100 women are just phenomenal. (laughs) I I was like, the numbers, I'm like, wow. Yeah. This is also something that, you know, a beautiful trend that we're seeing in this data is when this list started 25 years ago. 25? 25. It would have been impossible to find 100 women you know, who operate at that level in the business world. And now it's this beautiful, vibrant, diverse global list. So yeah, it's great. It's a global list. It is. It's a global list. 21 women on the list are European. Only two are from Germany. Do we know the names? Um, Melanie Kreis, the CFO of DHL, and uh, Belen Garijon, who's the CEO of Merck. She's Spanish, but it's a German company, Mm -hmm. so... We count her as two of the women from Germany on that list. You know, the UK has nine, France has seven. It's really quite interesting to look at the geographical breakdown of this list. And the vast majority are from the United States. From the US, you see? What is the selection process and like criteria to identify those women? I mean, this is like you're looking at the global scale. I guess, obviously, you're not starting from scratch. But where do you start? Yeah. So we have a team that works on this very, very diligently, and it's a, there's a whole methodology behind it. Basically, there are five criteria. Two are quantitative and three are uh, more qualitative. The quantitative criteria is the sheer size of the business. The second quantitative criterion is also this, the health and the success of the business. Mm. So that's a big part of it. Another criterion is how does this woman use her power for good? Number four is what are her 
growth prospects, like what's what's ahead for her and her career and what's the potential so that's more forward-looking. Are there any particular women that you resonated the most with? Honestly, so many of them. <laughs> I could I could talk about this for forever, but I mean, let's start with the number one woman on, um, on the list, Karen Lynch, the um, head of CBS. No woman has ever led a bigger business than Karen Lynch. I mean, this is more, we're talking about more than 300 billion in revenue. And her personal story is incredibly inspiring. She had some very difficult health situations in her family when she was younger that got her passionate about healthcare. And then she became the biggest power player in the healthcare system ever. So it's, that's an amazing one. We have a, um, the first transgender woman on the list this year, the CEO of Coty, the French cosmetics mm -hmm. company. Also a fascinating personal story of um, French Algerian background, rose through the ranks at French cosmetics companies. Super cool. And then um, another one that, and I don't want to list the whole list here. <laughs> We're we going to be good. <laughs> But one that I would like to point out because her story is amazing is our print cover star. So we um, we had Kim Kardashian on the, what we call her digital cover. We do those sometimes. Mm -hmm. And on our um, print cover in, on the newsstands, you will see Mira Murati the CTO of OpenAI, the company that brought us ChatGPT. Amazing. So it's the CTO, CTO that she CTO actually built. Woman. She actually wow. built it. Like she, you could say she is single-handedly revolutionizing I mean, everything. Everything <laughs> this year, pretty much. Yeah. It's on everyone's mind. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask also, I mean, you said that you were doing this list over 25 years. And you said, I mean, there was more women right now in those leadership roles. But what do you think this list also signals? I mean, from the feedback you've been receiving, any from the readers, you know, what do you feel like it's, what kind of message it sends with every year more and more? Well, first of all, there are more powerful women to choose from. I guess the selection process gets harder and harder every year, which is a good thing. And I would also say the list is getting more diverse every year. And not necessarily um, in terms of industries. I think it's actually been quite diverse for a very long time. We have women from all kinds of industries on that list. It's becoming more international. It's, from my personal perspective, um, an ever more fascinating list of people. Okay, that's beautiful. More to come, I hope. I'm curious to see this progressing into, like, even as you said, more international and diverse. And I know that you lived in Berlin before. <laughs> But now you're like, this is your base. And you mentioned that you were in New York shortly. You dreamt to be there. But what brought you now back to Berlin and... <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> do you feel like this is your place? This is where you're settling? Yes, I do. I do feel that way. I first moved to Berlin in 2008, right after my bachelor's, when I started working at the Berlin office of BCG. And then... From 2011 to 2013 was my first stint in New York when I did my, my master's over there. So I came back to Berlin then, um, always kind of thinking, oh, what if I'd stayed and I loved New York so much? But to be honest, living in New York as a student, is a, it's a completely different life than when you work there and you have to pay your rent and you're on the subway every day. And it's a, it's a different ballgame than when you live in subsidized student housing at your at your university. 
I cannot agree more. I mean, in that regard, Berlin can still offer this kind of good work-life balance also here. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, this brings me to my last question, Selma. And I'm curious if you will refer to the list or not, because the last question is actually something I've been having very consistently over the time on the podcast and highlighting my guests, Women Author of Achievement. So, of course, every guest was a woman who created her own success, created, crafted her own life and achievements. But I'm always curious who my guests have in mind as their, so to speak, role model or woman that they look up to. I think my friends would be very surprised if I didn't say Taylor Swift. So I'm going to say. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's a surprise one. Um, I think no matter what you think of the music, whether you like it or not, I happen to love it also. Um, (laughs) But you know, what she built with her songwriting and the ridiculous amounts of albums and that she put out and awards and records that she's shattered. It's just like someone who, she's not in our most powerful women list, unfortunately. Not yet. Not yet. But the economic impact that she had with her tour or lately also with the NFL, I mean, it's just it's kind of groundbreaking. Actually, this whole summer was so inspirational with the women economy with um, Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie and Beyonce's and Taylor Swift's tours that kind of disrupted local economies. Like, I just think it, that was that was a first and really inspirational. So there you go. I gave you three. This is so interesting. I think one time I actually had a guest and she brought the name of Kim Kardashian and I was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how come? I had on my podcast Emma Tracy and I was also like, she didn't tell me who will be her woman author of achievement and suddenly she's like it's kim kardashian and she's like i'm so happy i can finally say this mm-hmm. and now i keep it as a, a bit of a hanger that now you have to hear her response why and listen to that podcast <laughs> i will <laughs> i will with emma tracy i can totally see why kim kardashian is her woman author of achievement yeah i mean the reason why these private equity titans are partnering with her is because she is probably the biggest consumer marketing machine out there right now. Exactly. With the incredible following that she has with like an incredible instinct for brands and her skims business is like, it's a $4 billion business. It's huge. It's crazy. Oh yeah. But, um, this one goes to Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This episode. So, Thank you so much, Selma, for being on my show. I think I really love like your perspective and like sharing your background story, telling a little bit of your like life and like how you, you know, you moved around and you found yourself. It's also really exciting to see someone so passionate about to be where you are right now with Fortune. And I'm actually very thankful that you explained like where is it standing today? Because as you said, sometimes people assume something based on the legacy, but that it's so innovative, it's so agile, it's not necessarily something I had in the back of my mind. And thank you for introducing that. That was really refreshing to hear. And I'm excited about the list, uh, right? The most powerful women in business list and how that grows. And uh, also that's something for people to like to look at. Because every time, you know, you hear people saying like, we don't have enough women in the industry or we don't have powerful women that are leading great companies. And I think this is a great example where you're like, oh, you think so? check out this list yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and then, you know, tell me if you would, uh, you know, say exactly the same thing. So I think this so was true. really insightful. Thank you so much, Selma, for being on the show and telling your story. Thank you so much, Daria. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.